Hi all and welcome to Culture Tasters, your sample of today's creative industries. Each of our episodes is focused on a specific industry like film, visual arts, fashion, music, culinary or performing arts. My name is Raquel Cerebran and joined by my co-host Alfredo Achar. In today's episode, we will be talking about the changes and challenges of the opera world with our guest, renowned opera libertist and award winner Mark Campbell and Heather O'Donovan, libertist and soprano. It's such, you know, particular and you don't always get to have someone that has so many years of experience like Mark in the field and someone Excuse that me? is Excuse younger. Me? I'm not calling you old, I'm just saying your experience. <laughs> Mark, we're all young at heart. Yes, we are. We're all less experienced at heart. And <laughs> some of us are old in skin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone like Heather, who, who just started her journey, you know, very knowledgeable nonetheless. So I, I love that we have those two perspectives. Uh, so let's get started. Mark, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about how you got into opera, and where you are today, you know, maybe even through the pandemic, if anything has changed for you professionally. Yeah, sure. Um, I started many years ago, uh, several centuries ago as an actor. Uh, I moved to New York and learned quickly that I wasn't a good enough actor to sustain a career. And um, I started writing and I started writing lyrics for musical theater first. I came to opera by looking at the work of Steve Sondheim over and over. Like it just, he has been my hero forever. And he's always who I go back to when I get stuck in a story or something like that. So um, I started as a musical theater lyricist. And then in 2000, a composer named John Musto, brilliant composer, um, asked me to write my first full length opera called Volpone. And it was such a great experience. I've just gone to that dark side and uh, never gone back. I believe in the future of opera. I believe that opera has, in this country, has a tremendous amount of potential to tell stories that need to be told. And I think one place that Heather and I converge very passionately is um, the understanding that contemporary opera is where opera needs to go. Um, Traviata is great, Boheme is great, Aida is great, Tosca is great, all of those are great, but for opera to um, thrive and for it to continue, we need to be telling our stories and um, with stories that reflect our population. Heather? I couldn't agree more, Mark. Um, so a little bit about myself. I grew up in the New York City public school system going to great schools that really foster young talents. I went to Mark Twain Junior High School for middle school and I was a vocal talent there. And then after that, I went to LaGuardia High School, which is you know known for being the fame school if you've ever seen yeah. the movie Fame. And I was a vocal major there. And I was just exposed to phenomenal teachers who really nurtured my very young voice at the time. I don't come from a musical family. I don't come from a particularly artistic family, but I had this 
this gift and it was nurtured throughout the New York City school system. And so I went to Princeton University for my undergrad degree and then the Manhattan School of Music for my graduate degree. And that's where you're meeting me now, shortly after graduating from MSM. And it was in Princeton and MSM that I really started to explore libretto writing as a singer. So I'm primarily a singer, but I've always been fascinated by the the interaction between text and music. And so in my junior year at Princeton, I had this crazy harebrained idea to reach out to the English National Opera in London and ask them to just send me some of their music that they do because they perform all of their operas in English translation. And they, for some reason, did it, which was wow. wild to me to this day. It's crazy. And I wrote this paper all about how the characters are portrayed in their English versions rather than their original French versions and what that subtly tells us about um, what that subtly changes about the characters. So it was really interesting. And then for my thesis in my senior year at Princeton, I translated my own, um, well, not my own, but a French opera into my own singable English translation. And then I explored it more in MSM. I was part of this great program called Discover Opera, where we wrote sort of a pastiche of many different operas, but to a topical children's theme. So we created not Mary Poppins, but Mary Popra with new lyrics to a story inspired by Mary Poppins um, set to opera tunes. And it was a way of teaching school kids around the city to whom we toured the production all about opera. So I've always been really fascinated by this um, interaction between text and music. And then after graduating from MSM, I met Mark through MSM actually, because they brought me back to write some text for some of the current singers. And Mark has just served as an incredible mentor to me over the past you know, year and a half, two years now. Oh my now. God, is it that short of a time? I wow. know, it, I mean, it feels like we've known each other forever. I know, it, like a decade, yeah. Like, it, like I, I'm so grateful for everything you've taught me and continue to teach me. And that's where I'm at today. And the path continues. Well. <laughs> You know, something that Heather is being a little bit uh, humble about is that she comes from a, a really clear understanding of how music and text work together. As a singer, you have to live with music and text. You don't just write it or anything. You, it has to be part of you. This is something that is not always easy to teach. Um, I, I mentor at American Opera Project and American Lyric Theater. And we often get a lot of playwrights and they're great, brilliant playwrights, but they don't often understand that there is this other component to opera called music. And music is why we're here. So the words are intended to support the music. And Heather just understood that right away. Well, thank you I, for I, saying that, Mark. That's very incredibly kind and sure. generous. But well, that's, a, that's the last compliment I'm giving. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> you can critique me again. That's all you're gonna get tonight in opera and i'm sure we're going to talk about this later like we often play inside baseball because we think that everyone knows these terms and these names and these operas and these characters but it's really niche um Absolutely. but it doesn't yeah 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 i think i think that's the like the perfect transition to i mean to kind of like go over what is an opera and 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 you know because it, i feel like it's something that everybody kind of knows because of like movies and culturally general culture, in general yeah. but yeah yeah um 
but what are some elements that make it different from I, I don't know a musical or or another kind of performance that's very specific to opera well a lot of people I mean, first of all, opera is not Bugs Bunny or even, oh, I'm not thinking of the movie. The, the movie with Cher, uh, Moon, Moonstruck, of course, Moonstruck. Yep. Moonstruck, yeah. I was thinking Moonlight. I don't know why. That's a different movie. That's another um, movie. Yeah. A, a great movie. But um, it's not necessarily that experience for everyone. A lot of people want to draw the distinction between musical theater and opera. I don't see much of one. Um, the only okay. thing that I see as a sort of a, uh, a distinction is that in a musical, more words are spoken um, than are sung in an opera. Okay, but okay. Here I go back again to Stephen Sondheim, but he said uh, it's a musical when it's performed in a musical theater house, and it's an opera when it's performed in an opera house. So, <laughs> yeah. um, which is a great way of like shooing away any kind of definition. But I don't think we need to define it. It is just simply the incredible power that music brings to words. Words alone cannot express what we feel. I mean, that's why we listen to music most of our lives, not spoken yeah. words. I mean, forgive me, I'm, I'm on a podcast, but, um, and this would be so much better if it was sung. And I think we're gonna start right now, Heather. Let's start <laughs> singing. Uh, I'm joking, I'm joking, I scared you. Um, that would be my dream, by the way. Yeah, I was, I was like, I was like, please don't be a joke. No, no, no. And not, I would just like, not with my along. voice. Not with my voice. There have been too many cigarettes and huh. wine consumed for you to hear me sing. I used to, but um, um, so it's just sung. It's just sung drama. That's all it is. If it's musical theater or opera, it's sung drama. That's what I would say. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, Mark. I think, you know, maybe looking at musical theater today where the range of the human voice that's portrayed on stage and through the music is a little bit smaller than it might have been in like the golden age of musical theater a few decades ago. I think maybe that's one differentiation that I see today in opera still, even contemporary operas, where we're very frequently exploring the entire range of the human voice from the lowest bass to the highest soprano. Um, but other than that, there's really not much of a difference. I I think that nowadays we go to a Mozart opera like the Magic Flute, for example. When it was premiered and still when it's performed, it's technically a zingspiel, which means a speak sing. So part of it is spoken, part of it is sung. And a lot of operas in the opera canon, like the ones that are frequently performed, are fully sung through. But there are also a lot with spoken dialogue. So it has that overlap with musical theater also. Yeah. The line between the two can be very fine. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Is that is that the case also with contemporary opera? That it's sung all the way through? Not necessarily. I mean, Mark, maybe you can think of some examples because I'm kind of drawing a blank, but I- Curveball. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure there are some that aren't sung fully through that incorporate spoken text. Well, if you But is that a thing of contemporary operas or I would say most contemporary opera is sung through. Um Okay. And I think one reason they that happens is to draw a distinction between musical theater and contemporary. Opera. I I can tell you an experience I've had with one of my operas where I had spoken text and the director came over to me and said the singer is not comfortable speaking can we reduce the spoken text? And I was sort of like, well, what's the problem? But the truth is that opera singers, this is the way that they, I'm pointing to my voice um, as if I'm on camera. Um, uh, the voice is how they, they sing. That's how they communicate. They don't communicate through speaking. Mm -hmm. So 
the request was was very understandable. I mean, if you look at again, uh, going back to Sondheim, Sweeney Todd is performed every year by several opera houses around the country. It is an opera. In my mind, it is an opera. When I first saw that on Broadway, not in an opera house, I said, this is an opera because of the construction and the scarcity of spoken text. Um, but Little Night Music is also performed, but less frequently because there's a lot of spoken text in A Little Night Music, especially in Act Two. So it doesn't quite have the same success in opera houses. Um, you think it would because the music is so classical, whatever that means. But it doesn't quite work as well in an opera house as it does in musical theater. So to that point, question, <laughs> because Good segue. we really need to learn, I guess, Alfredo and I and general public that does not live in this world on a day-to-day -day basis. When you speak about libretto, what are you referring to, right? And how is that different from writing a play or, you know, a song? First, I want to preface this by saying I think that our perception and conceptualization of art and music, it's always changing and it's always in flux. And I think that's a great thing. A libretto is, put simply, the text to an opera. Librettos or libretti, if you want to say like the way it might be said in the field, libretti is the Italian plural pronunciation of it. They are essentially the vehicle for the music. The music tells the story so much better than just words alone can. And the libretto is something that is very efficient in its way of getting the story across to the audience. It tells you just what is needed, no more, no less. In fact, in workshops of um, new operas, libretti are often cut Sometimes, you know, there's text added where it needs to be, but oftentimes there's a lot of text. The difference between a libretto and a play is that a play, the text has to stand on its own. You have phenomenal actors acting the text and, and portraying these characters, but there's nothing else aside from the scenery and the costumes to help tell the story. So libretti are very efficient. I mean, Mark, you can answer how long a typical libretto might be in terms of page length, but it's significantly shorter than a play. Because if we had a play and just set that to music, my God, the opera would be like more than Wagnerian in scope. It would be like <laughs> 11 hours long, it would be crazy. My yeah. favorite moments in my own librettos, and I say librettos, not libretti, um, uh, are when I know the audience has enough information that they're not gonna even listen to the words. They're not gonna care about the words. They're just gonna sail on the emotion. That is That means I've done my job. We are essentially architects. We provide a really firm foundation for the house, nice walls um, that can't be toppled, uh, a good door into, boy, I'm gonna carry this metaphor really far. Um, uh -huh. uh, clear glass on the windows, but the composer gets to come in and paint the walls and put in pillows and I, boy, this has taken a gay turn, um, but has, has given us, gives the emotion of the house, makes the house feel like at home. We just make the house feel like a house with a few indications towards home. I want to talk about myths, you know, because from the standpoint of the outsider, someone that does not go to the opera regularly, that knows about it a little bit, but maybe I think that the, like the majority of, of the world, very sadly, I hope more people go to the opera. I went to one the other day with Heather and I absolutely loved it. So what did I really you see? Encourage everyone. We went to, what's the name? Heather. Intimate, Intimate Apparel. Apparel. Speaking, of, uh, 
Uh, in a minute, Paro, Ricky's up. Ricky and, and Lynn Natasha's opera. Yes, um, amazing. That's quite good. Yeah, it is. We, quite we good. had a blast. It was so beautiful. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it could, it can be intimidating to even think about going to the opera because, for example, what I had in my mind was, you know, I need to get on heels. I need to get extremely dressed up, super movie-esque, you know, yeah, idea also, of going also, to the opera. Also, to your point, Raquel, I don't know if you also feel that, but I'm I'm from Mexico and it's always been like very like otherworldly and like inaccessible and like European. So so that's also Absolutely. I think part of and, well, the, and, the first thing you need to do when you think of going to the opera, and Heather and I both have many of these, uh, you have to buy an opera cape. You have to buy like five or six <laughs> silk opera capes from Europe <laughs> with a red lining um or a blue line train or yeah a train um <laughs> no of course not that's what we're trying to change because yeah. that's bullshit that's not good for opera it's not good for theater and that um that view of opera is it doesn't work for anyone anymore i mean yeah. it, it's i think it's a really dated construct for opera and we're trying to change that all of everyone i'm working with all of us all all of my colleagues are trying to change this view of opera and make people realize that you don't need an opera cape. Mm -hmm. um, I wish that we could make it cheaper. That really does disturb me about how expensive it continues to be. So you go to the opera or theater in general and you think that you need to be this extremely formal and overconscious person when I feel like art should be something that you're there to experience and enjoy in your own way so i guess like i'm speaking on the myth but from my perspective i would love to hear from maybe heather your perspective when you're inside the world of opera what are things that you see that you know that you think people should know but you know they absolutely don't know about the industry yeah, yeah i mean absolutely i think all of like the things we're talking about are real problems you don't have to wear you know, I have six opera capes, but I don't wear them. On <laughs> she, she wears them all at once. She wears all of them at the same time. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, I think that, you know, from opera being expensive, that's not a myth. But I will say that there are a lot of ways to see it cheaper, especially if you're younger. Um, so there are a lot of like student tickets available to people. Um, there are a lot of like what they call young people tickets available that sometimes young people goes up mm. to 40. So it's a really generous scope. Um, there are a lot of ways to get less expensive tickets, but on the whole, it is still very, uh, you know, prohibitive. And that is a problem, but it's also kind of just the reality of the, the, the sort of like growing up of opera within America. It was never sponsored, at least to my knowledge, by the state largely it is fueled by donations and by ticket sales and it is a very it has been in the past a very lavish art form and so it has been expensive to produce it doesn't have to be a very lavish art form but when we're dealing with presenting operas as museum pieces it frequently becomes expensive and so it is economically prohibitive i think that some other myths are that you know like you have to Oh, that no operas are in English. That's so not true. People think that all opera is Italian. And when I tell them otherwise, they're like, what? People should feel free to show up as they want. You know, maybe don't wear sweatpants to the opera, but 
you know, you can wear like or anywhere, please. Or anywhere. <laughs> Put on pants. Put on pants. It's okay to dress up. You should dress up when you go out. Like you should yeah. dress up. It's a nice thing to do. That's all. Um, here, here's kind of a, a cool example because um, it's fresh on my mind. I wrote an opera based on The Shining, um, and it opens at Opera Colorado at the end of this month. And so here's some here's some cool things about that. The composer, Paul Morvick, is a brilliant composer. He did not compromise one note in the creation of this opera. It is a story that the audience knows, or they think they mm. know, because they know from the movie, but this is based yeah. on the book and it's way different. That opera outsold Carmen in the first day of ticket sales. And opening night at the Opera House in Denver, which holds like 2,200 seats, it's almost sold out. That's what we need to do. I mean, like, it, it will not be the Met audience at this opera. There will be Stephen King freaks. There will be younger people who love The Shining. There will be also opera people. Um, that's what I wish we could do more of. I, and I also think Heather is, feels the same way. We're striving to make opera a populist art form, not elitist. And it has such a terrible reputation for being elitist. I think part of the challenge might be, and I'm not the expert in the room at all, that you know art is a form in a communicator of the times that we're currently living and i think for so long opera was just a historical so mark um for me opera is all about storytelling like any dramatic form whether it be music or straight speech or a novel or whatever um but i think that each artistic medium has a different like sort of sh different strength when it comes to storytelling. So why did you and Paul decide to turn The Shining into an opera? Like why opera for that particular story? Because our audience is probably so familiar with it. Um, and I love that question. Um, it came to us. I didn't go out and go, oh, let me turn this, you know, uh, novel by Stephen King into an opera. Minnesota opera, Dale Johnson and the stage director, Eric Simonson came to Paul and said, we think this would be a good opera. And Paul said, yeah, sure. And then they came to me and I said, yeah, sure, because I wanted to write for Paul and I wanted to write for Minnesota Opera. And then I read the book and I went, oh, damn, this is a challenge. Um, Cause it's long and, and adapting it is difficult, but there was still something within the core of the story that sang to me. And I'm a big fan of the movie, but the movie is not operatic at all. There's no, you know, you know, Jack Nicholson is a is going to murder his family as soon as he yeah. can from the beginning. So there's no story. The novel is very much a story. This character of Jack Torrance is fighting against something. He wants to be a good man. You never think of that in, when you watch the movie. He wants to be a good man. He wants to protect his family. He wants to protect his wife, his son. But then he but then the darker forces in him that are expressed through this hotel come forward. What could be more operatic, Heather? I mean, like, um, oh wow. And, and I didn't know that until I read the book. I just said yes, because, well, you know, I'm ambitious and I like to pay my rent. You have to find your, the heart in the story. There has to be reason for characters to sing. And that heart can be very dark. It, it doesn't have to be like a happy heart or anything like that. The audience cannot connect with the story unless you've given them, unless you've given your characters a reason to sing. And that makes us all connect because music is an abstract art. So we start thinking with our, 
our emotions rather than our brain when we watch opera. And that's where we need to go. Absolutely. And I think, so right now I'm reading a book on your recommendation, Mark. It's um, Into the Woods by John York, I think, mm -hmm. if I'm remembering correctly. Mm -hmm. um, and there's this great line that I highlighted like 70 times. It says, great drama asks us the question or begs us to ask the question, you too? And I think yes. that, like, that's the heart. When I read that, I was just like, like, of course, that's why we like, like, I mean, I, I dark stories and I'm not a dark person, but like, I love them. I, I think it really does ask us to say like, you too. I remember that line. I remember that line so clearly because that's the sort of line that should be applied to every new opera that is written. You too? Otherwise, why is it there? I mean, and I go to the opera and I'm often sitting there going, why did anyone ask the question? Why do I care? Why should I care? And we should all be asking that as we write our opera stories. You too is the best. I mean, Sweeney Todd, you can look at Sweeney Todd and go, you too, yes, I'm not gonna slit the throats of strangers. Like we sometimes look to opera to allow us to have the emotions we often cannot have in real life, which is an overpowering love or an overpowering need for revenge. I, I think it goes back to the idea of being the opera being relatable and touching like your darkest parts and your happiest parts and, and yeah and also I think like to the point of you too why now that's also I think something that should be asked for everything um, that's being written produced played I think it's super important. I can't tell you how often I ask the question, why now? We're in a difficult time politically. I mean, we're recovering, I suppose, but, but this country is so screwed up right now. Um, we need stories that, that we constantly have to ask, why now? I, one of the jobs of art is to move the world forward. Yeah. Um, and when you have music, it can move it significantly forward. One tricky thing with why now is that when we're writing an opera, it takes time. Like it takes a lot of time to get an opera, first of all, onto the page and then from page to stage. And, you know, when we're dealing with such profound issues in the country right now that are so deep seated in like the foundation of the nation, didn't mean to rhyme there. Oh Lord. <laughs> oh, that's embarrassing. Um, you know, when we're dealing with those issues, they're very sadly not going away overnight. So with opera, we, we do have the luxury of time to tell those stories. And I think one thing that I really wish could happen is, and is happening to a large extent, is to see more historically underrepresented voices. One of the things that I do is I write uh, for the radio station WQXR, which is the classical music radio station in New York. I'm a contributing writer there, and I was just talking to my editor recently about like stories that we can write, and we came up with this great idea for um, Women's Month. We're going to basically highlight female composers who, or female identified composers who are getting premieres of works with major symphony orchestras. And so I see this change in the field already. Uh, you know, 100, 200 years ago, a lot of things were by men. 
And now that's not so much the case anymore. And I think continuing to push the industry in that direction, not just for women, but for, you know, people of all colors, for people of all backgrounds, for people of all gender identities. It's just very important that we create opportunities for everyone to be welcomed into the field because opera is fundamentally a medium of storytelling and how can you restrict the stories that are told so profoundly in an art form that purports to 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 move so many people so you're so talking you're about daily what i strive for daily um in my writing clarity always clarity like and clarity sounds like such a um limiting term but i can't think of a of an artist who doesn't strive for clarity. Even when you're doing totally. the most, you know what I mean? Like even when you're doing the most obfuscating, seemingly obfuscating things, art's purpose is to try to identify how we can change and how we can be better. Um, and that, that has to be done with clarity. So I'm very proud of a number of operas I've written that have put forth certain stories that other people are not familiar with, like As One, which is an opera about a transgender person. The opera I'm working on now is my 40th opera libretto. So it's wow. really, it's hard for me. Yeah, it's hard for me to keep track. Um, I'm writing op uh, an oratorio now with Paul Morbeck again. Our first one was about the Underground Railroad. Our second one is about uh, immigration and I, stay, I set it in Ellis Island. And our third one is about voters' rights. Our fourth one is going to be about a woman named Ruth Coker Burks. Ruth Coker Burks in 1986 went to the hospital to visit a friend in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And she looked down the hallway and there was a door there. It was a, a, and they had a big X over it and all the meal trailers and everything in front of it were, they were just thrown there. And she says, what's going on? This is 1986. And the nurse said, oh, that's a homosexual down there. He's, he's dying with that. Disease, that gay disease. And she went into the room and she spoke to this guy who, who died like probably a week later. Ruth Coker Burks, because of her empathy and because of her power as a human being, ended up taking care of thousands of people with AIDS when no one, when they were discarded. I'm sorry, I'm going to say when we were discarded because that's my generation. That's who, that's, that's how I'm a veteran. This is what opera can do. This is where our stories need to go. Not just with this individual in Hot Springs who made a great decision to take care of people, but other people who take care of other people. Yeah, um, That's a big generalization. <laughs> but um, I just want to assure your audience that that's where opera is going. And to go see Ricky and Lynn's opera, Intimate Apparel, it's a gorgeous experience. And other operas that are out there, um, Matthew O'Coin and Sarah Rule's um, Eurydice uh, at the Met. Like, these are the stories I want everyone to see because uh, we're changing opera in, in, I think, the best way possible. So, yeah, just to finish, I think that's, that's perfect because I was going to ask, um, what would you recommend me to go see if I've never seen an opera? Sweeney Todd. Yes, we, I you, love that. Okay, okay. And also, you should see um, all of my operas. Okay, I will. No, absolutely. Okay, I'll get you tickets. No, The Shining, <laughs> The Revolution of Steve Jobs, Elizabeth Cree is an opera with Kevin Putz, Silent Night. Like, I like my operas. Some of them are really good. Some of them are just awful. But, but, <laughs> but there, there's, there's some good storytelling. That's all. Absolutely. You also developed the Zoom opera during the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Which we We're must watch. 
starting tonight. Thank you so much for tuning into Culture Tasters. We appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Make sure to subscribe for future episodes and to follow us on Instagram at Culture Tasters. This podcast is produced by Raquel Serebrenik and me, Alfred Achar. We thank you for your support and see you next time.